Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of July 10th, 2023. It's been almost a year since business owners near the largest homeless encampment in Phoenix sued the city. The judge ruled in their favor, but that was only the beginning. Suddenly, all eyes are on the multi-block cluster of tents and self-made structures that, by some estimates, housed up to a 1,000 people. Both parties are in court this week, and the business owners are saying the city isn't moving fast enough to remove the encampment. Kirsten Dorman reports. At issue is the zone, which is what everybody calls the cluster of tents and shelters made of pallets, sun-faded blankets, and tarps that's been clustered around the Human Services campus downtown for years. I spoke to a woman who goes by Chica, who lives there. We're only using her first name because she's worried she could be attacked for talking to a reporter. Chica used to be a nurse. After her husband died, she became unhoused and ended up in the zone. I'm a 50-year-old grandmother of nine. I don't want to be here. Phoenix is in the midst of what could be a record-breaking heat wave. The pavement where people pitch tents can reach 180 degrees. Chica says part of how she gets by is selling sodas, and she's been the victim of violence here, most recently a few days before we met. This has got to be a living hell. I want my house, and I want to get the hell off this street. Violence and crime are a reason downtown Phoenix businesses and property owners sued the city last year. Testifying Monday, Freddie Brown, who owns a funeral supply business there, said the zone is a public nuisance and Phoenix is responsible for it. Violence is an everyday theme, be it from just fistfights, people yelling, screaming. Um, I've actually provided Phoenix Police Department with video of people brandishing weapons towards other people in and around my business. In March, a Maricopa County judge sided with plaintiffs and ordered the city to clear the zone, and he gave it until this week to show progress. Rachel Milney directs Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions. She says the city is dedicated to moving the homeless encampment, and it's part of why her office was created. I would say the city is committed to doing this regardless of an injunction. But people are becoming homeless faster than Phoenix can provide shelters or housing. Still, in May, to comply with the court order, the city started clearing streets and moving anyone willing to go indoors. It's been doing it a block at a time, clearing roughly one block every three weeks. Given the number of people in the area, taking it one block at a time allows us to address the needs of those individuals on that one space. In court this week, the business owners say the city isn't moving fast enough, and they don't think its overall plan will work either. That plan is to create a structured outdoor camp about a block away. The city says there will be security there and a place for people to camp legally, and it will offer indoor space to cool off. The judge is expected to rule quickly on whether Phoenix is making adequate progress in clearing the camp. Back on the street, where news travels largely by word of mouth, people who live in the zone feel out of the loop, like 68-year-old George Ritchie. I put it like this, uh, uh, we're at uh, wit's end because our backs are against the wall. He says people feel frustrated, like they're not included in the decision-making process. We weren't uh, 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 privy uh, to, to what was said uh, uh, and how did uh, this uh, 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 come about. In downtown Phoenix, it's clear that change is coming. But exactly what that means for people living on the streets and the property owners who sued to have them removed is still not clear. 
Kirsten Doraman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Front Terrace News. Plastic is used in everything from your morning cup of iced coffee to the bumper on your car, but the waste those products create is piling up. In Tucson, what began as a pilot project to address some of that waste has exploded into something much more. From our Fronteras desk there, Elisa Resnick reports. Plastic really is all around us. UN data shows more than 400 million tons of the material is produced globally every year. A third of it is only used one time. Recycling seems like a good way to make a dent. Problem is, a lot of that plastic can't actually be recycled. Potato chip bags and candy wrappers, the single-use plastic bags, those are all contaminants when they wind up in the blue bin. Tucson City Councilman Steve Kozacic says that means it ends up costing the city money and still ending up in a landfill. And the result is that the city is paying Republic Services over $300,000 a year in contamination fees. Last fall, Kozacic's office set out to change that. He started asking Tucsonans to drop off any kind of plastic, from hard waste like detergent bottles to soft stuff like those chip bags. From Tucson, it gets trucked up to California, where a company called Bifusion uses a combination of steam and compression to make construction-grade building blocks out of the material. Here's Kozacic again. Uh, it's, it's melded together and formed together and held together until it sort of starts to congeal and harden. And then the blocker kicks out, you know, this Lego, a 22-pound Lego. A block sitting in his office is cut in half. You can see the different plastics kind of squished together like the layers of a canyon. Some of the logos of old containers are even still visible. These blocks are already being used in a few flower beds and park benches around Tucson. And bigger projects are on the horizon, like municipal buildings and a storage unit for the local women's shelter. A guy in Flagstaff is even building his home out of them. Kazachik says, in other words, Anything that you can use cinder block for, you can use these with. They can paint it, you can put stucco on it, you can drill into it, shoot sheetrock sheet into it if you, don't, if you want to hide the look. More than 100 tons of plastic have been collected since the project began, with people from areas as far flung as Vail, south of Tucson, and even Phoenix dropping off bags of waste. Additional drop-off locations have been opened to meet the demand, but they fill up several times a week still. And when they do, those loads have to go somewhere. That's how they end up at Tank's Speedway Recycling and Landfill. It's a dusty plot dotted with humongous piles of wood, cardboard, and bags upon bags of plastic waste. The plastic from the program is dropped off here to be sorted and smashed into cubes called bales. This, this is only from the City of Tucson plastic program right here. Anthony Bannister is the supervisor of the site's baling operations. And we, we haven't even dug through any uh, half of the pile yet. Behind this raw plastic, a neater pile of baled plastic is ready to be taken to California. Bannister says each of those bales weighs 1,100 pounds. So if you do the math, you're looking at about uh, over 100,000 pounds of, of, of plastic bales. And more is dropped off every day. The sheer volume is how a new question started getting tossed around. Instead of bringing Tucson's waste to Bifusion, why not bring Bifusion to Tucson? In May, the city signed a more than $3 million agreement with Bifusion to build and operate a blocking facility at the local landfill so that waste can be stored, baled, and blocked all in one place. Heidi Kujawa, Bifusion's CEO and founder, says this is the company's first agreement of its kind with the city. And the new facility will actually eclipse the original one in Los Angeles. A bigger platform, a bigger facility, 
um, because the volumes there are larger from what we're dealing with in LA right now. Kujawa and Kazachik say they expect to get the facility up and running within the next year. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news. Short-term rentals are becoming increasingly prevalent in Arizona, and full-time homeowners, especially in the state's most touristy areas, are growing increasingly frustrated by the noise and nuisance. In the first of a two-part series, Phil Latzman recently visited with a group of Scottsdale residents who say the situation is creating a new housing crisis and that the state continues to hamper local efforts to enforce peace and quiet. It was a bit like group therapy when I met them recently in an old town restaurant. Every weekend, around every Thursday, there's almost a feeling of dread as to what's going to happen this weekend. Constant noise, constant rotation of strangers. A backyard full of 10 extremely drunk, screaming adults that I can hear inside my home. I saw a drug deal in the alley. We've had people try to enter our home at 4 o'clock in the morning. I was attacked by guests who brought their dogs. These longtime Scottsdale residents say their neighborhoods are being taken over by short-term rentals and transient visitors. Cheryl Triplett says the noise and the nuisance just never stops. We've suffered property damage with our landscape lights. The garbage has been piled up and just left for days. Woken up in the middle of the night from women and men just woohoo, hooping and hollering at the top of their lungs. Triplett even claims her underage daughter and her friends were harassed by unruly and rude guests leering over her property wall. Had somebody said that I was going to end up living next door and across the street from five short-term rentals, we never would have bought on our street. Stephanie Nestlerode has tried complaining about the partygoers near her home. Um, I've been served two times, uh, literally legally, uh, for calling the police for interference with the short-term rentals. Um, as they described, I don't particularly feel qualified to be involved with them because they're so intoxicated, they throw trash over the property wall. Adealu Adebayo has had a similar experience. When they knock over trash cans into, you know, my car, property manager of the Airbnb sends us threats in response. So the people who are in charge of taking care of these places are defending their property by threatening people who are getting in the way of their money. Christy Hudson says she's beginning to see the impacts with young families leaving the area. I I know of a young couple that did live in my neighborhood. It wasn't that long ago. Um, The wife got pregnant and they sold their house and moved away because they realized they didn't want to raise a baby next door to a short-term rental that catered to bachelorette parties. Hudson bought her home before state law usurped local control of short-term rentals. While a homeowners association would protect her against transient neighbors, she says it wasn't an issue before things suddenly changed back in 2016. And we purposefully bought in Scottsdale in a non-HOA because we also wanted to paint our house whatever color we wanted. And the city of Scottsdale also protected us in terms of short-term rentals because Scottsdale did not allow residential property to be rented for less than 30 days. And then the state took that away. Specifically, SB 1350, the law that severely restricts how cities and towns in Arizona can regulate those rentals. Last year, Governor Doug Ducey signed another bill into law, SB 1168, that's designed to mitigate the situation by giving local governments back some of the oversight they used to have by allowing them to require licenses and police the more troublesome partygoers. But Kate Bauer of the Arizona Neighborhood Alliance, which has been fighting against what she calls the commoditization of housing, says that's not enough. 
They want restrictions on the amount of STRs that can be allowed in a given area. Every year it gets a little bit higher as far as how many bills come to the floor to help to try and help support us on this um, for local control. But, you know, this year, none of them moved. None of the bills moved. While they've seen their housing prices increase in the short term, these residents fear STRs will ultimately do long-term harm to their home values. When there are families that can't afford housing, meanwhile, there are houses that are vacant most of the week all on our block, that's just wrong. Basically, your private property is no longer yours. We tried to sell our house and get out, but we overheard a couple with a child say that they didn't want to live next door to a short-term rental. And who can blame them? And you have to put that on your listing. Tomorrow in the second part of our series, we'll hear from Airbnb plus local and state officials on what they're doing to address the problems associated with short-term rentals in Arizona. Phil Latzman, KJZZ News, Scottsdale. You can find part two of this story on our website, kjzz.org. In science news, TikTokers hungry for content are celebrating record high temperatures by holding dashboard cookouts. One KJZZ listener wanted to know, is it really okay to bake cookies inside your car? From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis says it's a recipe for disappointment. Given time, you can cook just about anything on low, but you'll likely lose the physical and chemical changes required for good taste, let alone food safety. Aerospace engineer Ankur Jen of the University of Texas at Arlington researches heat transfer thermodynamics. Technically, it should be possible to produce something edible. Whether those cookies will pass the taste test or not, I'm not quite sure. Jen says the story should remind people of the dangers of leaving pets and children in cars. Another scientist, Ariana Middle of ASU, said her chocolate chip car cookies took around four hours. The main mechanism at work is the greenhouse effect, which lets solar radiation through the glass but traps heat inside, just like in a solar oven, which would be a better choice all around. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions, here's a fresh installment of the show series called Saguaro Land. Here's co-host Mark Brody. Sun and sand, sagebrush and tumbleweed, rolling mountains and giant cactus. From our armchair seat in the sky, we see Arizona's famous Valley of the Sun at Phoenix. Camelback Mountain is outlined on the horizon. Today, we look at the desert through a botanical lens, both for food and for medicine. Many people see the Sonoran Desert as a harsh environment, one that can be dangerous, and it can be, but it can also heal and nourish. Felicia Ruiz is a corandera, or traditional healer, as well as an author and teacher. She stopped by recently to talk about this. We live in one of the most edible and medicinal environments in the world here in the Sonoran Desert. So lots of foods that we can grow or forage as well as foods that we can use for medicine. What are some of the ones that you find yourself using or talking about most often? I do my best to share on foods that people 
have access to. And with so many people moving to Phoenix from other parts of the country, a lot of people don't know what our edible landscape is. And so I'll tell them, just go look outside, look for the Palo Verde Verde trees, look for the mesquite trees. Um, They both have edible fruits and, you know, the mesquite alone, it's the tree of life for a reason, because we have so many things that we can make um, from that tree. So you can eat flowers from the the Palo Verde trees? Yes, they kind of taste like sunflower seeds to Uh. me. So when they are in full bloom, and I know a lot of people don't like when they are just all over the driveway. The yellow flowers that you can't get rid of. Yes, go collect them. And next time you make a green salad, just toss some in there. They do taste like sunflower seeds. And I often dry those as well and use them to make a herbal tea um, infusion. I want to ask you about bougainvillea water. And I know that bougainvillea is not necessarily native to the Sonoran Desert, but so many people have it in their yards or have it nearby. And I had never heard of it until somebody brought it up to me, but apparently it's something that's very popular. Yes, I would say, um, at least in my culture, on my Mexican side, it's something that many of us grew up um, drinking as a herbal infusion for like coughs, like respiratory, lung issues. It's... um, vibrant. It's pink, you know, especially bougainvillea comes in so many different colors, but the ones that most of us see around here in the valley are the bright pink fuchsia um, flowers. But you're actually using the bracts. They're not the flowers, but it is that bright, brightly colored um, petal leaf bract. And what we'll do is we'll just gather a whole bunch of those. We'll put them in a pot of water and really boil them at least for our family, about 10 minutes. And then we just let them sit and cool down, add some honey. Sometimes I'll put a cinnamon stick in there and add some lime or lemon. It's it's super refreshing. And when my daughter was little, I used to call it hummingbird water. <laughs> now, does it taste kind of like, I'm imagining like an herbal tea kind of thing based on how you're describing it? A little bit. Some people think it almost looks um, and tastes like um, jamaica, hibiscus mm-hmm. tea, but I don't think it tastes that strong. It's actually very delicately flavored. When you talk about the ability to forage in the Sonoran Desert and all sorts of different plants that have medicinal qualities to them, they, they might taste good to some people. How many of those things have have been sort of known for for generations and generations, and how many of them are maybe being discovered now? Well, I wouldn't use the word discovered because I feel like they are just plants that we've used since time has begun. But um, I would say a lot of us are remembering the plants Mm. that our elders used or our community, our culture. I don't really think that they've been forgotten where we're like rediscovering them. But I do hear from my own community that many of the elders are really excited to see the younger generation um, going out and, and using them again in a way that they remembered them being used. Do you find that there are younger people who are who are really interested in this and trying to sort of reconnect uh, with their roots, especially in indigenous communities? Most definitely. Um, With so many of our indigenous um, families, like now living in urban areas, you know, we live in areas where you don't have 
an acre of desert and you can just go out and forage. So there are a lot of programs that are in motion now where we can um, take people out to the desert and forage and help them reconnect to their culture through food. I really see it in their eyes. Like they're really excited because I think it's it's for them they feel like they're anchoring themselves in stories that they've heard in the past from family members and it's somehow giving them the context that they've only heard about or read about. But when you can make something, touch it, feel it, cook it, collect it, smell it, it just really brings it to life. What do you think it is about the Sonoran Desert that makes it a place where so many of these kinds of of plants grow? I don't know if I can answer that. I, I feel really blessed to have been born and raised on this land and that my people have been here for a long time. I don't know. Perhaps we were just lucky to have this, what people think is... Um, a wasteland. You know, they look at the brown desert. They don't see the life that I see. Do you find yourself sticking to uses of some of these plants and flowers that have been used for generations? I mean, do you maybe try to take something and use it maybe in a different way or find a different use for it? Yes, I absolutely love um, cooking with flowers. And so, for instance, long ago, we weren't adding ice to our beverages and things like that. And yet I will get the um, flowers, let's say, from ironwood tree or flowers from the Palo Verde tree. And sometimes I will put those in my ice cube trays, like the Mm. old school ice cube trays, and then um, freeze those. And just even having that little nod to the desert in my ice cube is kind of fun um, for the for the summer beverages, even though, of course, that's not a traditional thing to do, but it's so pretty. Do you think that you see the Sonoran Desert a little differently maybe than other people, given what you know about which plants and flowers and fruits can be eaten and what the stories are and the traditions are behind them? I do. Um, Growing up, I I didn't really have the same relationship that I do now, but definitely apprenticing and learning under many of the indigenous um, grandmothers of, of our desert They really have helped me, um, I guess, give more context to what it means like to be a desert person, to be a desert dweller and to work with the land and to really know that we're part of nature and not apart from it. And I would imagine there's a significance also to it not just being an edible landscape, but having some of these things that that have medicinal quality too, that, that have healing qualities to them. Oh, yeah. So many of our plants are actually used as medicine. And just as an example that I like to share when I'm taking people on walks is um, the prickly pear pad, the nopal. Um, If you have ever burned yourself, many of our uh, grandmas will say to put aloe vera, you know, and we can also do the same um, for our skin for that burn with a filleted cactus pad. So it has that same um, slimy, mucilaginous uh, uh, kind of cold and cool gel that can also be used on your skin for burns. So that's medicine. All right, Felicia, thanks a lot for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Felicia Ruiz is a curandera or traditional healer, as well as an author and teacher. And finally, in education news. 
State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn says Arizona's 50-50 dual-language model is illegal, and he's threatened to cut funding from schools that keep using it. But as Bridget Dowd reports, advocates for the program continue to fight back, saying it's an overreach of his authority. A group called Stand for Children Arizona is leading the effort, asking the State Board of Education to address the matter. After all, they say the board approved the 50-50 model as one of four English instruction options in 2019. Stand for Children's Daniel Hernandez says they've collected nearly 3,000 signatures from people who want the 50-50 model protected and will deliver those to the board on Thursday. We are calling on the state board to have a special meeting before the first school districts in Arizona get back into the semester. So that if they are using any of the four approved models, they have assurance that they won't have any penalties. Horn says the model violates Prop 203, which requires English language learners to be taught only in English unless they have certain waivers. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank. The Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Stay hydrated.